0: Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is uh, my name's Sean. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I, uh, I'm going to like jump right in. I felt that, like during worship, there was a, uh, there was a, a video that I was going to play during my sermon that I, I, I left on the cutting room floor, and I felt like the Lord really brought it back to my mind. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 23, and uh, this clip was, uh, was of this little Norwegian shepherd, <laughs> uh, and he was standing in, in front of this big green meadow with this wonderful kind of misty mountains in front of him, and you hear the wind growing, and he's standing out there, and he just starts to call. He says, yanna, 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 runna runna runna," whatever he was saying. <laughs> Is that pretty good? That's pretty good, right? Um, so he starts calling, and as soon as as soon as he, he he you you hear nothing but wind, right? He he calls out, and you hear ah ah from up in the hills. But there's this mist everywhere; it's so you can't see anything, and he just keeps calling. And soon, like peeking out from the clouds, you know, from this mist comes running all of these sheep. They're just running to him, running, running, and he just keeps calling, run, 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 the yun, the yun, the yun, yun, and he waits till all of them come. He waits for the scragglers to come, and then he feeds them. My sheep know my voice. The voice of the shepherd, the good shepherd. I just felt like I was supposed to share that. So we are in the fourth, uh, we're not in the fourth week, we're in the the second week. I'm not good with math, so... (laughs) Um, yeah, I'm not good at math, but we're in the second week of our kind of Summer of Psalms uh, series, and uh, this series helps us kind of look at the different, uh, different kind of pillars or distinctives of our church, um, how we revel in the mercy of God, how we proclaim the mercy of God, how we demonstrate the mercy of God, and how we participate uh, in the mercy of God the, in, in acts of goodness for the, for the mercy of God, uh, for the good of the city. Um, this morning, it's a real joy for me to kind of pick up on that first, that first pillar of reveling, reveling in the mercy of God. Revel is, a, uh, revel is an old word. Um, it, uh, it's an interesting word. We don't really use it a whole lot anymore, but it literally means to take great pleasure or delight in, to make merry, to indulge and be boisterous with festivities, uh, which basically means we get to enjoy how God loves us. We get to set our mind on him. We get to look to the shepherd. We get to listen to his voice through the way that we study, through the way that we worship, through uh, spiritual formation, through uh, prayer, through gathering together. Uh, we, we get to revel in, in his mercy. Last week, Nick did an awesome job of kind of reorienting us to the psalms because we're going to p- be taking a psalm uh, or a number of different psalms to kind of look at these, look at these different things about what psalms are kind of for and um, he, you know, he talked about how they're really a powerful devotional and prayer tool. They can literally transport us. Both the psalms and songs can transport us to a different, different time and a different place. You know, we can remember we can remember that song from the from the '90s. We can remember that song. We can remember psalms that we learned as children. And this morning, our psalm is going to certainly do that. Psalm 23. Uh, it's a psalm that our kids are literally learning right now in in kids' church, which made my heart glad hearing my daughter uh, begin, to quote, uh, begin to quote it. And uh, David, as a good kind of Middle Eastern uh, author and poet, is, uh, is, is going to take us to a different time and place. And he's going to do that through the power of a metaphor. So the best description I have ever heard of, about a Hebrew parable or kind of the, the poetic use of metaphors is that they're like a great room that you get to step into. When you do, the author intends for you to sit and observe, to look around and to notice, to wonder and to see, to allow the layers of meaning to unfold and literally wash over you. It's like a great room to step into. These layers of meaning are critical, are absolutely critical in helping our minds to be reshaped, becoming like his, It's not, this is not an overstatement. It's not an overstatement to say that how we think and more importantly, what we put our minds on is perhaps the most important thing about how we learn to live in Christ. And and by the way, I'm not talking just about the intellect. Uh, The intellect is a part of it. What I'm talking about, when the scripture talks about the mind, it's kind of akin to the heart, the the thing that makes you the most like God in his image. You have a personage like your mind, who you are, how you set all of your mind on him. Paul points us to the importance of the mind in Colossians chapter three. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Paul also gives us a comparison for the use of the mind for people who don't know God in Ephesians. And he says, you must, he's talking, talking to us, church, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do or the unbelievers do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. In studying this week, you know, I came across uh, something by a, a Christian counselor named David Pollison. He wrote something called the Anti-Psalm 23, Uh, and I thought it was really profound. He wrote it as a counselor, as a therapist, and and a Jesus-focused one who had been with many, many people and listened to how they're processing life, and this this is what he wrote, and I think that this sums up what Paul was talking about both in Colossians and Ephesians really, really well. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I am thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some pretty dark paths. Still, I insist... I want to do what I want, when I want, and how I want. But life's life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. I mean, bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one's got my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite enough. Never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever? Homeless? Free falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. If some of that... Some of that resonated with you this morning. I have good news for you. This does not need to be your reality. There is a good shepherd, and he is pursuing you. This morning, I hope, uh, very very briefly and very quickly, to walk us through a handful of things. We're not going to be able to look at all of the, all of the psalm. There's so much in it. I'm just gonna hit on a couple of points and we're actually gonna go back into worship and, and, and do some reveling, right? Um, so don't get scared when I'm on the first word of the first verse and I'm, I'm five to seven minutes in, okay? <laughs> I know where we're going. Don't, 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 don't worry about it. Let's step into this great room that David has written, this great song that David has written and let's observe. Lord, help us. The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me to restful waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You set a table and prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You bathe my head in oil. My cup is so full it spills over. Surely goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. We're going to look at three things very, very briefly. Three ways that I believe in this great room, David is inviting us to revel in in God, in the mercy of God. The first thing is that we revel in his name, the second is that we revel in his management. And the third is that we revel in his house. The Lord is my shepherd. Right off the bat, David lets us know he knows who he's talking to. He knows his name. This is David, the shepherd boy who became king. He's an Israelite. And as an Israelite, he is an inheritor. He's an inheritor of their history, their stories, the covenant, and the names of God. You see, in Hebrew, in Hebrew, Names tell you something of the character of the person that's represented. Names are an important thing, and they reveal an aspect of who they are. God reveals different names for himself in the Old Testament to showcase different aspects of who he is in relationship to us. When it comes to the names of God, there's just, seriously, there's an interesting progression that happens in the Old Testament. Basically, you start off with, uh, you start off with this idea that God is God. Elohim, it's in Hebrew. It's it's kind of a generic term that just means God. There's actually a lot of other gods. It's just a generic term for a god, okay? Then you progress further, you get to Abraham, and, and God says to Abraham, he reveals to Abraham that he is God Almighty, El Shaddai. He's not just any god. He's like, hey, Abe, I'm in a league by myself. I am the Almighty God. There is none other but me. There's no competition. (laughs) There is no competition. You can trust me. You progress further and you get to the Exodus story, which is like the defining moment in in Israel's history where where this this God uh, sees his people languishing under oppression and slavery and, and crying out to be delivered and he said, he decides he's going to go down and do something about it. And he tells Moses, tells Moses that his name is Yahweh. And he's going to actually, he's gonna actually help uh, Moses and the children of Israel experience the attributes of what that name is. It's not just it's not just a, a, a word that, 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 that they knew. He was going to help them know that he is Yahweh. Yahweh, this name. It's given in the context of deliverance, of, of absolute rescue and salvation. He is going from, it's just a general God, to, no, this is God Almighty, to, no, I'm the God who rescues you. I'm the God who is going to be faithful to you. Now you will see that I am Yahweh. And, 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 and God says that that will be his name forever in, in Isaiah. And here's a really interesting thing. It's a really interesting thing. Jesus' name literally means Yahweh is salvation. The God who saves is my salvation. That is the name that was given to Jesus. Not just God, God, not just God Almighty, but the God who saves you, the God who will be faithful. David is reflecting on this, uh, on this reality that this is the Lord. He has experienced deliverance himself. He, has, he knows what it's like uh, to be chased through the wilderness. He knows what it's like to dodge spears <laughs> from, from King Saul throwing it, th- throwing it at him. He remembers his time as a shepherd boy protecting the sheep and, and, and fighting off a bear and a lion. He remembers times of worship by himself. He remembers that this Great God has been faithful. This Yahweh, this deliverer, this rescuer, this faithful and fully sustaining one has always been with him. David knows his name, but David also knows who he is. That's actually also really, really important. Psalm 23 shows us that David knows. David knows himself. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, said, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. It is evident that, men never atta- that a man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. Sometimes within the context of the church, we can maybe sometimes overemphasize unworthiness or sinfulness, which, by the way, is actually not true. <laughs> like, well, you and I are, on uh, our own merits, are completely unworthy uh, uh, in and of ourselves of the love and the grace that's been given to us, but it's not the whole picture. That's not the whole picture of what is true, and if you stop there, it can actually produce a sense of inverted pride, where you stare at your sin You stare at yourselves, you stare at your own unworthiness because it's right for us to acknowledge that truth and somehow it almost becomes like a weird merit in and of itself. On the other hand, in our day and in our culture, the bigger challenge is not that. The bigger challenge we face, you could say, is the gospel of (laughs) self-actualization. This is the thought that the universe and people are essentially good and that you deserve only good things. What you want out of life is always attainable and no one should stand in the way of your happiness. This is the, uh, the Maxwell Lord promise from Wonder Woman 1984. If anybody saw, saw that movie, right? This is, life is good, but it can be better. You just have to want it. It's not true. <laughs> the gospel tells us something very, very different. The entire psalm, this entire psalm, Carries with, carries with it the balance of David, knowing that he is deeply loved and cared for, but also a humbly accurate picture of himself. I don't know if you know this or not, but to be called a sheep is not exactly the most flattering thing. I, 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 Philip Keller, a former shepherd, reflecting on Psalm 23, says this, the behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. <laughs> Our mob instincts our fears and timidity, our stubbornness and stupidity, our perverse habits are all parallels of profound importance. Literally before I showed up here today I could not find my phone. You would have thought the sky was falling. <laughs> oh great man of valor, here to preach on the good shepherd and how the Where's my phone? Where's my phone? I'm not talking to you as someone who's arrived anywhere, okay? I'm I'm one of the sheep Okay, I have a clip that I want to play for you that I think captures this picture pretty well. Welcome to humanity. Nailed it. Listen, I want you to remember that this psalm, this psalm where you're a sheep, I'm a sheep, David, this is King David. This is King David. He's at the zenith in his culture. He's He's the guy. I want you to remember that this is the king of Israel. He recognizes that his worth is not based on how awesome he is. How smart he is, what he has, how much he has accomplished, he's a sheep. No, he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd. He remembers loving his sheep, loving that little rascal. It's like, oh my gosh, i got to get you out of there again. I'm, I'm sure glad I'm here to see that you did that and get you out of there. He remembers both tenderness and like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? He remembers and he sees himself in it. He loved those sheep so much that he was willing to lay down his own life to protect them. A sheep, us a sheep. Are you going to tell me objectively, like let's back away from the agrarian society for a second and objectively, that your life is worth the life of a sheep? It was to the shepherd. The reality is, no, there's no merit in a sheep. It's a sheep. What gives it great merit is that the shepherd knows its name and cares deeply for it. That is our security, brothers and sisters. It is not, this is not a worm theology. This is not a woe is me, but it's, it's also not a, hey, look at me, I'm awesome. This is, this is, I'm a sheep and my shepherd loves me. He knows my name. He knows your name. Understanding his name and understanding us are really important, really important things. Um, Val just finished a book by Thomas Merton, and she shared this quote with me, and I think it perfectly captures this point. In the true Christian vision of God's love, the idea of worthiness loses its significance. Revelation of the mercy of God makes the whole problem of worthiness something almost laughable. The discovery that worthiness is of no special consequence since no one could ever by himself be strictly worthy to be loved with such a love. It is true liberation of the Spirit to receive that. That's gospel. He left heaven to come get us. (laughs) Not because we did something great, but because he loves us. The next thing that this psalm helps us to revel in is that we get to revel in his management. Not only do we revel in his name, and it's important to know the name of our shepherd, to know the name of the Lord, we get to revel in how he cares for us, the management that he provides. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I won't lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me to restful waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. David is happy to declare that Yahweh is in charge of his management. He's got a really good shepherd. I got Yahweh. Who do you got? (laughs) Again, Philip Keller, the former shepherd, says, "'Sheep do not just take care of themselves, as some might suppose.'" They require more than any other class of livestock, (laughs) Uh, endless attention and meticulous care. David remembered how hard he worked as a shepherd and how diligent he was and how his sheep constantly looked to him for everything they needed. These verses are not promises of great earthly prosperity, by the way, and lack of difficulty, which has been mentioned this morning. Even the second verse, even the second verse, is not what we likely have in mind. You see, when we read green pastures, we think of the uh, the moors of Scotland. Oh, I do. I'm Scottish. <laughs> Deep, lush green grass as far as the eye can see. But, but David is not from Scotland. <laughs> David is not from Scotland. He's not Scottish. He's a shepherd in the Judean desert which is not that different from inland California, right? This is actually what David has in mind. David's contentment, listen, church, listen. David's contentment as a sheep is not in ideal circumstances that would not require a shepherd. David's contentment is in the sufficiency of the shepherd's management. Eyes on the shepherd. That is where our peace is. That is where the pastures are. That is where things come from. Eyes on the shepherd. You know, sheep, they refuse to lie down unless they are free of all fear. (laughs) Uh, Unless they're free from friction with others of their own kind. Free from flies or parasites that are just nagging at them. And lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. They must be free of hunger. The next thing that we see in his great management is not just provision, but is also that he restores my soul. There are two concrete, really concrete. I love Hebrew. It's such a concrete language. It's like the idea of truth is like, it's actually the word for rock. It's not just mental ascent. It's, it's, it's so, ah, It's tangible. So these metaphors are tangible things. There's a tangible thing in this verse of he restores my soul. It's very concrete. The word for restore, and you've heard me say this before, is actually the Hebrew word for repent, which in the Greek means to change one's mind, which is absolutely true and right and good. The Hebrew adds context and dimension to it because in Hebrew, David remembers going out looking for a wayward sheep. And when he found it, it's paralyzed because it got lost or it's stuck in a fence or wherever. He picks it up and he brings it home. He brings it back. He causes it to repent. The goodness of the shepherd brings it back. It's literally a picture of the shepherd going and picking it up and bringing it back. There's a second, though, concrete reality. And I didn't know this one until, until just, just, just this past week studying it. Um, there's a second thing where if a sheep falls over, uh, they're, they're not the kind of animal that likes being on their back. They don't sleep on their back. They don't like to roll over on their back. In fact, if they do roll over onto their back, they can become cast. The idea of being cast is, 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 is the word for it. They're literally downcast. Does that sound familiar? Why are you downcast? Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul. If a sheep, listen, this is, it looks funny, but if a sheep, if a sheep does not get help from the shepherd, they are freaking out, they go into shock, and gases form in their abdomen, and they die. It looks cute, this is death. When the, steep, when the sheep stumble and fall, church, without the shepherd to get them back on their feet, they run the risk of dying. So whether you've wandered off or you've stumbled and fallen, you have a shepherd that causes your soul to be restored, to stand you back up and say, "Ah, oh, it's all right. When are you going to learn to stand on your own? I'm sure glad I, I found you in time. I'm here. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, concrete picture of the shepherd that you and I have. The third, the third thing that we see in his great management is that he guides me in right paths, bringing honor to his name. When you and I think of a path, we think of something like this: straight shot. What's the fastest? What's the fastest direction between two points? Right, or is a straight line? Give me a straight line. I want to give me on the straight and narrow, God. I just want to stay around right the straight and narrow. Problem is, that's not actually not what the verse says. That's not what the Hebrew word there means. The actual Hebrew word means circuitous path. It's a roundabout. It's a roundabout. And what David remembers, you can go to the next slide, are these grooves in the sides of the mountains in the Judean wilderness. These are where the hooves of sheep for thousands of years have literally carved paths into the rock. The shepherd knows the safest way to get to the top and to get back down is not straight up. We want the shortcut. This, this psalm tells us there are no shortcuts. God's not into the shortcut business. He knows what he's doing. We can trust the sure, slow work of God. He will take us around and around and around. Have you ever been like, God, why is this taking so long? Why am I not different yet? Why why did you not let this happen? What's taking you so long? The shepherd knows what he's doing he knows what he's doing. He knows how to get us safely to where we're going. And by the way, part of the reason that this is, because this is a green pasture in the Middle East. <laughs> all along the way, all along the way, little rocks, little tufts of rocks all, all, along, along, this, uh, along these, these hills, the, Mediterranean, the, the warm air from the Mediterranean, the air from the Mediterranean comes in overnight and it hits the warm air from the desert and condensation uh, grows on little rocks. And from that condensation, grass little tiny tufts of grass uh, poke, poke up. That's where he's leading them in paths of righteousness and they can eat and step and eat, step and eat, step and eat all the way up and around. Your shepherd knows what he's doing. The apostle Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And he does this for his good name. I love this part. I love this part. There is no way he is going to get a bad reputation as a bad shepherd. He does all of this because he loves us? Yes, absolutely. But he, he also is because he is entirely Always, consistently, honorable. He will always live up to his name. It's his reputation on the line. We're the sheep. If things go bad, it's not my fault. I'm the guy that jumps in the ditch three or four times. (laughs) He knows what he's doing. Eyes on the shepherd. As I look at who I am today, and I think about who I was 20 years ago, I was, I was still, like I just told you the, the cell phone story. I'm not like this giant of great faith or anything, but I also know I can see a difference. If you reflect on your life when you met Jesus and where you are now, you can see, you can see the hints of the growth, the sanctification, the forming of new things in you. Don't get impatient with yourself. Trust him. He knows where he's going. Eyes on him. Eyes on him. Not on you. The last thing, and band, you guys can come back up. The last thing that this psalm helps us to revel in. Oh, the band, yeah, they've scattered your...